Hello and welcome to the summer edition of Salt and Light Radio. I'm Pedro Guevara Mann and today we go to Edmonton, Alberta for Nothing More Beautiful, a series of catechesis and witness talks that aims to renew the faithful's relationship with Christ. The name Nothing More Beautiful is taken from a quote by Pope Benedict XVI where he said, There is nothing more beautiful than to be surprised by the gospel, by the encounter with Christ. There is nothing more beautiful than to know him and to speak to others of our friendship with him. Nothing More Beautiful is taped at St. Joseph's Basilica in Edmonton. Today we bring you the fourth session, which was recorded live in May 2009. We will hear first from Bishop John Corriveau of the Diocese of Nelson, British Columbia. And following the catechesis session with Bishop Corriveau, we will hear from Patrick Stewart, the director of the Marion Center in Edmonton, Alberta. The topic today is Towards a Culture of Life. The book of Genesis, the very opening chapter of the book of Genesis, reveals God as the fountain of all goodness and as the source of abundant life. God's gift of self in Jesus Christ reaches its fulfillment on the cross. An ancient icon of the church shows Jesus rising to his father, holding Eve by one hand and Adam by the other. Jesus does not return empty-handed to his father. He bears all of humanity in his redeeming embrace. The cross becomes the infallible sign planted in history, which indicates that no expression of our humanity is alien or separated from God's redeeming and transforming love. And this redeeming, transforming love has been entrusted to us. We see this in chapter 20 of the Gospel of John. On the evening of that first day of the week, even though the disciples had locked the doors of the place where they were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. Peace be with you, he said. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. At the sight of the Lord, the disciples rejoiced. Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so I send you. Then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. It's the most important passage after proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And in the Gospel of John, it's John's description of the Pentecost event. Jesus commissions his disciples, he commissions the church to bring the abundance of life released in his resurrection to the world. As the Father sent me, so do I send you. This commissioning is accompanied by two gestures which reveal the energy which will power this mission. He shows them his hands and his side. Our world spends billions to wipe out these ugly disfigurements of the human body. Why does the risen Lord glory in these ugly wounds? John gives us the answer at the beginning of the same chapter 20. Peter and John hasten to the tomb, drawn by the startling story of Mary, who reports that Jesus is no longer in the tomb. Peter enters the tomb first, and he notes the details. 
details which indicate that Jesus leaves the tomb as one might check out of a hotel room. Peter enters and he sees the linen, linen wrappings are, are, that, that covered his face are nicely folded up and laid in a corner. It's an indication that from the Gospel of John that the resurrection is not an improvised event. It is a well-planned exit from the tomb. John pointedly and respectfully makes no mention of Peter's faith reaction. Why? Because Peter does not believe. However, John notes that the other disciple, John himself, he went in, he saw, and he believed. Well, why does John believe and Peter know? Because John alone of all of the disciples, he alone of all of the apostles, had stood beneath the cross. He alone witnessed the awesome power of the love of Jesus. John saw in, in the scriptures, the, the, every symbol has a meaning. And in the scriptures, if you look in the Gospel of Matthew, I think it's chapter, uh, in the chapter immediately uh, after, at the end of the Passion narrative of Matthew, it says the veil of the temple is ripped in two. Well, that's the same expression as Mark uses at the beginning of the baptism, when he says the heavens were ripped open. God's love was visible to the naked eye in the death of Jesus Christ. His love the love which Jesus shows on the cross is a love beyond all human comprehension. And therefore, why does Jesus show them his hands and his side, those ugly wounds? Because they are the signs of his divinity. These are the signs of a love beyond all human comprehension. John witnessing that love and then witnessing the empty tomb, John is immediately conscious of what has occurred because he has seen it in the power of, uh, uh, of the cross of Jesus Christ. His second gesture reveals that this awesome power of love is entrusted to us. He breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Scripture scholars tell us that this gesture should be interpreted in light of Genesis chapter 2, the Lord formed man and from the dust to the ground he breathed in his nostrils and man became a living being. The love revealed in the cross, therefore, will inaugurate in the world a love as entirely new and startling as that affected at the very first moment of creation. This love is entrusted to us. This love, the love of the cross, what we might say the clean water of Ezekiel, that clean water that's going to transform human hearts, is the love of Jesus Christ, which is to be poured out upon the world through us, and through us must transform human relationships in our world. Our secularized world concentrates on the I as an individual, much more than on the I as a person. To be free in our society means to be autonomous, independent, able to decide our own future without outside interference. A well-known American television commentator 
once described freedom as the right to do as we damned well please. That's the meaning of freedom in our world. The right to do as we please. The right to do as we please without hindrance of any kind. This is a world of extreme individualism, what we might call the tyranny of the autonomous self. It has created a society marked by domination and violence of many kinds. For 40 years, our society has driven a wedge between the freedom of a woman and the right of a child to life. It is my body, I can do with it as I please. And it's not only a woman's issue. The woman's right to autonomously decide the outcome of a pregnancy touches the man's right to live autonomously, including his right to autonomous sexual choice. Individualism, the right to be autonomous, independent, able to decide our own future autonomously, has framed this debate for 40 years. In this debate, one side gives priority to the individual right of the child, the right to life. The other often ascribes absolute priority to the woman's right to individuality and autonomy, the so-called right to choice. In the scriptures, life is given to us as a free gift. Life is a gift, a gift we have received from God. God breathed into his nostrils and man became a living being. Dignity has likewise been given to us as free gift. Let us make humanity in our own image, a free gift from God. Our dignity is a free gift from God. Yet our secular society has driven a wedge between dignity and life. Our Trinitarian God, revealed in Jesus Christ and in his resurrection, invites us to reconsider the meaning of human freedom. In the process, I believe it reframes the abortion debate. Our Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Spirit, is relational by nature. Our Trinitarian God has been described as a free communion of persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, without domination and without subordination. Imagine such a society. A society where there is no domination, no one dominates, no subordination. The Father does not control the Son and the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, there's no subordination in God. In the mystery of the Trinity, the perfection of being Father is the perfection of being Son. The more perfectly the Father is Father, so perfectly is the Son Son. Therefore, to be father does not impede in any way being son. In the mystery of the Trinity, there is no domination. In the mystery of the Trinity, there is no subordination. The freedom of God is not to be found in autonomy, but in the mystery of relationship without subordination. Father, Son, and Spirit do not compete for their day in the sun. You're listening to Bishop John Corvo of Nelson, British Columbia, speaking on the topic, Towards a Culture of Life. 
during the Nothing More Beautiful series from the Archdiocese of Edmonton on Salt and Light Radio, the Summer Edition. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We were not created in the image of a solitary, paternalistic, isolated, and autonomous God. We were created in the image of a personal, relational, and Trinitarian God. Therefore, we image God only insofar as we live in relationship. If we are going to image a God of relationship, we have to live in relationship. It is only in relationship that we come to image our Trinitarian God. Perfect autonomy is not freedom, it's isolation. This is the meaning of the nakedness of Adam and Eve in the book of Genesis. Remember after they've eaten the forbidden fruit, they have identified to be the godness with autonomy. And therefore they imitate that autonomy. And what happens as a result? They hide from God, why? Because they are nakedness. They discover only their nakedness, their exposure, their isolation within creation. God is perfect freedom because God is the perfection of relationship. We image God only in relationship. What happens when we look at a pregnancy from the perspective of persons created in the image of a triune relational God? It means that the mother and her unborn child are to image a communion of persons without domination and without subordination. If a pregnant woman is to image, if a pregnant woman and her unborn child are to image the Trinity, they have to create a relationship without subordination and without domination. There can be no competition between the dignity of the mother and the life of her unborn child. The relationship between a woman and the child of her womb is the closest possible and most intimate relationship possible for a human beings. Every beat of the mother's heart gives life to her child. The freedom of God is a freedom without domination. It is a freedom without subordination. The choice to terminate the pregnancy without regard to the welfare of the unborn child is an act of domination and subordination. Should the woman unilaterally choose to snap the umbilical cord, she does not experience life-giving freedom, but isolation and lifeless autonomy. It's the message of the scriptures. It's the message of the book of Genesis. It's the message of the nakedness of Adam and Eve in the garden. A communion of persons without domination and without subordination also means that it is wrong to champion the right of the unborn child without regard to the consequences for the mother. There can be no competition between the dignity of the mother and the right to life of the child. A communion of persons without domination and without subordination challenges the church and challenges our society 
to create a culture of life which sustains and supports this delicate and fundamental relationship. A culture of life must provide the physical, material, psychological, and spiritual supports which will sustain and accompany a woman as she embraces the life of her child as the most precious expression of her freedom and her personhood. When we regard a pregnant woman as the image of God, a communion of persons without domination and without subordination, we are challenged to look at the abortion debate through new and life-giving, a new and life-giving viewpoint. Our Trinitarian faith <clears throat> offers other vital life, uh, or, or rather a response to other vital life issues in our society. I once saw a billboard for a Toronto clothing company. I won't advertise the company. But they had a marvelous billboard with this slogan. If you feel your life is hanging by a thread, pray that it's one of ours. Marvelous. It was marvelous. It must have had a marvelous response. Why? It touches the core of our insecurities. If you feel your life is dangling from a thread, pray it's one of ours. Well, as secularized men and women, we do everything to overcome, overpower, and escape the contingency of human life. We seek money and power to dominate it. We use cosmetics and facelifts to camouflage it. We use alcohol, drugs, or even pornography as an anesthetic against it. And when all else fails, we euthanize it. We claim the right to euthanize. Why? Euthanasia is the ultimate expression of human autonomy and human isolation. If you feel your life is dangling by a thread, the choice to live in relationship is always a choice for vulnerability. Where do we see it most profoundly? We see it in the mystery of the incarnation. God made a choice. God's choice of our humanity was a choice of vulnerability. God chose to be vulnerable in Jesus Christ. St. Francis expresses it beautifully in his writings. He said, the angel Gabriel spoke uh, through God, the, 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 the Father, through the angel Gabriel, spoke his word, to the, uh, uh, spoke his word and uh, from the flesh and from the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary took the flesh of our human frailty. God took the flesh of our human frailty. God chose vulnerability. In that choice of vulnerability, God forged an unbreakable bond of love and care for our humanity. Therefore, the Trinitary, the, the cross and the incarnation teaches us another way to face the contingency, the vulnerability of human life. Living Trinitarian love, we embrace the contingency of human life by forging bonds of unity with God, with human beings, and indeed with all creatures. To all who received him, who believe in his name, St. John tells us, he gave the power to become children of God, 
born not of blood or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. The world witnessed such a marvelous choice of vulnerability in the spring of 2005 as we followed day by day, the whole world followed day by day the dying process of Pope John Paul II. Pope John Paul II's service as Pope was marked by a constant reaching out to others. In his process of dying, he humbly thanked those who came to share the moment of his death. Millions throughout the world enfolded John Paul II in an embrace of love which accompanied him to the throne of the Father. Our Trinitarian faith helps us to realize that from the first moment of conception to the last moment of our natural life, we are enfolded in the embrace of loving relationships. Within this web of relationships, we secure our lives. Within this web of relationships, we realize our dignity. And within this web of relationships, we realize our human potential and our freedom, never autonomously. We cannot embrace a culture of life without embracing the poor. Our relational God, who embraced what St. Francis termed the flesh of our human frailty, calls us into a new and redeemed relationship with the poor. A United Nations Human Development Report issued in 2005 stated that every hour poverty kills 1,200 children. The same report indicates that the disparity between rich and poor continues to grow in such a manner that they give this statistic. The 500 wealthiest people, individuals, the 500 wealthiest individuals in our world have at their disposal resources equal to those available to 416 million of the poorest. It's like having, you know, uh, let's just take the United States. There's only 370 million, but therefore that's a close enough number. Let's consider that one little village with 500 people had the resources available to all the rest of the people. A market-driven economy where competition and economic advantage are the main motivations will necessarily create winners and losers. An economy which defines security in terms of amassing wealth always by necessity creates an underclass of the poor. It is also a society built riddled with violence. Therefore, as Christians, we have to bring another perspective. The poverty of our world will be overcome not only by new technologies, but especially by new relationships. God is love. Other-centered relationships bear within themselves life-giving and transforming power of God. Where there is an other-centered relationship, God is there. And other-centered relationships <coughs> that we embrace release us into the world the transforming power of God. This is vividly portrayed to us in the miracle in the multiplication of the loaves and the fish in the Gospel of John. 
All Gospels recount this miracle. However, John adds a crucial detail, the willingness of a young boy to share his meager resources. The Gospel says, there's a boy here. I think it's Simon says to Jesus, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what good are these among so many? I've always found it difficult to understand that in a crowd, crowd of 5,000 people, there should be so little food available. After all, in North American popular culture, the Jewish mother rivals her Italian sister in literally stuffing their children with food. And you have all these Jewish mothers. I don't believe that there were only five barley loaves among 5,000 people. John provides an insight. Others in the crowd had their bits of bread and fish, but only one boy had the generosity to share his all. With that important piece of information, John adds another crucial element to the miracle of Jesus, human solidarity. In the multiplication of the loaves, Jesus gives exponential power to the generous act of one boy with five barley loaves and two fish. In the process, Jesus teaches us that solidarity bears the power of God. Solidarity transmits the power of God. Where human solidarity is present, uh, uh, poverty is overcome. St. Peter tells us we await a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness is at home. As Christians, we should champion an economy wherein our brothers and sisters are our greatest wealth and righteousness, right relationships between people, our greatest security. We don't get security from our wealth. We get security from our relationships. Relationships build peace. In his encyclical, Solicitudo Rei Socialis, Pope John Paul II defines solidarity as a moral and Christian virtue. As a moral virtue, solidarity is a firm and persevering determination to commit oneself to the common good. This virtue, the Pope tells us, helps us to see the other, whether a person, a people, or a nation, <coughs> on a par with ourselves in the banquet of life to which we are all equally invited by God. As a Christian virtue, solidarity, the Pope tells us, sees that one's neighbor is the living image of God who must be loved with the same love with which the Lord loves him or her. Christians who have experienced the relational God of love must ensure that solidarity becomes an important component of every economic change. An economy flowing from a culture of life is built not only on advanced technologies and material growth. A culture of life embraces solidarity with one's neighbor, particularly the poor, as an essential dimension of economic activity. We wait for a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness, right relationships, will be at home. The autonomous pursuit of rights is the temptation of our world. When a nation pursues its rights autonomously, war erupts. When individuals pursue their economic rights autonomously, 
The environment is destroyed and the poor are pushed aside. When one pursues his or her sexual identity and sexual expression autonomously, relationships and family are destroyed. When a woman pursues her freedom of choice autonomously, an unborn child is destroyed. The absolute self recognizes nothing beyond its own fulfillment. The total self-giving love of Jesus on the cross created the church. After his resurrection, Jesus entrusted his mission to us, his church. He endowed us with the power of the cross, the power of his incredible love, to carry this mission to the ends of the earth. He showed them his hands and his side. As the Father sent me, so I send you. He breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. This mission is further described in the first chapter of the book of Revelation. He who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, by his incredible love, has made us into a kingdom, priests for his God and Father. We're accustomed to the image of the kingdom to describe the church. But Revelation adds the qualifier, priests for his God and Father. This is not the passive image of a bunch of sheep. Priests for his God and Father is an active, engaged image. Priest for his God and Father is an instrument capable of transforming a world of alienation and division. Priest for his God and Father is an active agent of change. St. Bonaventure captures the energy of this image by telling us that we are little words of the Father. I love this expression. Just as Jesus is the word of the Father, the definitive word of the Father, his love for humanity, so we are little words of the Father. Each one of us, each one of us unique, unrepeatable, each one of us called to be God's word of love to the world. Each one of us meant to bear, actively bear, God's life to the world. It is a mission of relationship through life-giving love, and it is a mission that our world sorely needs. Praise be Jesus Christ. listening to Salt and Light Radio heard Saturdays at 10 p.m. Eastern, 7 Pacific on the Catholic Channel, Series 159 and XM 117 and on the internet at saltandlighttv.org slash radio. I'm Pedro Guevara Man, and today we bring you the fourth of the Nothing More Beautiful series from the Archdiocese of Edmonton. Today's topic is Towards a Culture of Life. And we just heard the catechesis session by Bishop John Corvo of Nelson, British Columbia. The witness talk will be given by Patrick Stewart, director of the Marion Center in Edmonton, Alberta. ...of our related Madonna House communities around the world, you will likely see a small sign that says, I am third. There is at least one school in Edmonton that greets its students with a large poster that says, God is first, my neighbor is second, I am third. What does this have to do with my story, or even more importantly, what does being third have to do with the culture of life? Everything.
Let me start at the beginning. For lots of reasons, I did not graduate from the school of infancy and early childhood with high marks. The louder voice of my twin brother, my mother stretched to near breaking point by the needs of five small children, an emotionally distracted and alcohol-abusing father, and then my own physical developmental challenges meant that I entered into all the subsequent stages of maturing emotionally impaired. Wonderful grandparents living close by showered me with love and attention that gave me some core strength. But even with this, I got stuck in childhood and entered adulthood, barely capable of looking after myself, much less looking after others. Children running around in adult bodies is not an uncommon phenomenon in our world today. You probably know that we are designed by God to progress through different stages of maturity as we grow up. The time of infancy and early childhood is about receiving love, care, and much, much attention. It's the time to be first. This was even true for Jesus when he was an infant and child. He needed to be first. Next, the young person, four to about 12 years of age, should learn to care for themselves while being mindful of those around them. And they should be learning to do hard things like making their own beds. When we enter adulthood, which in traditional cultures, believe it or not, begins at about the age of 13, we learn how to care for more than one person at a time, ourselves and at least one other. Maybe we are second at this stage. A parent kind of maturity is required when the first child enters the scene. Celibates and single adults are also called to this level of self-giving. But without wailing and diaper-dirtying babies, it's not as easy to make the transition to third place. And finally, some folks will enter the last stage of maturity and become elders, men and women with hearts and minds and emotions formed and generous enough to be third for a whole community. Let me go back to my story. During the summer between my junior and senior years of university, I spent several weeks driving and camping off the west coast of the United States across Canada and then south to Chapel Hill, North Carolina, where I was attending school. Shortly after getting back, I received a very thick letter from my father. Now, he was not much of a correspondent, and I was well aware that he and my mother knew I had made that camping trip with a somewhat older female friend. So by instinct, I headed off, letter in hand, to a nearby pub. After draining a very large pitcher of beer and reading the hard words that I was expecting from my father, I walked out of the bar and into one of the darkest thunderstorms that I had ever seen, one that perfectly matched my mood. Before I made it back on foot to my residence, I encountered violet lightning bolts striking in my immediate vicinity, was drenched by driving rain, pelted or better pummeled by hailstones, and finally nearly, seriously, nearly carried up into, a, into the sky by a tornado that was ripping trees out of the grounds less than 100 feet away from me. At that terrifying moment, and the only time so far in my life that I've done this, I prayed at the top of my lungs. And in that shouted prayer, I promised God that I would become a priest if he saved me. <laughs> well, this should, I say this should have marked a turning point in my life, but it didn't. 
When I finally got home, I told my girlfriend what had just happened and declared that God had saved my life. I'm sorry to say that she immediately talked me out of my conviction and laughed at me for thinking that God would encounter me directly. And with that, I was back at the flesh pots. Just a few weeks later, she came to me in tears to tell me that she thought she was pregnant. My response? Panicked, self-protecting, I said that she should have an abortion. And there I was, concerned only about me, not the baby, not my friend. I thank God that she was not, in fact, pregnant, that there was no abortion. But I had been ready to kill a life, ready to kill my own offspring. Though I twice contemplated marriage in my 20s, I remained single and chose unhealthy and sinful relationships. I'm at least thankful that God protected a potential spouse and children from my immaturity and self-centeredness. I entered the U.S. Navy upon graduation and during my 11 years of naval service was assigned to four different combat ships. I began as a junior officer on an aircraft carrier that was homeported in Yokosuka, Japan. In my last year of service, I was the weapons officer aboard a nuclear-powered cruiser. For most of those Navy years, I was, from a commanding officer's point of view, a highly desirable officer. In addition to being very capable, I was a workaholic. Part of, the drive was uh, part of my drive was inspired, I suspect, by my moral shortcomings and lack of self-confidence. So I strove to make myself indispensable. I may have looked third to a captain, but I was first by a nautical mile. At this point in my story, I encourage, you know, beg all parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, friends, to pray for the lost adult children. I know how important this kind of intercessory prayer is from my own experience. Unbeknownst to me at the time, my father and mother flew with a priest friend to Fatima in Portugal in the late summer of 1985, about one year before my conversion. As the trio was flying out of New York for the Shrine of Our Lady, my father announced to my mother and Father Jeffrey that their mission was to pray for me. Now, my father never told me this. I heard this from Father Jeffrey years later. I had been lodged in a long-term unmarried relationship, was a workaholic, probably an alcoholic, and hooked into the drugs of codependency and seduction, and they knew it. Only recently have I connected some dots. At or about the time my parents and Father Jeff were praying for me in Fatima, I had another encounter with the mercy of God. After a long Saturday of clearing brush on a piece of land I owned in the foothills of Southern California, I relaxed back at my condo in, in the outdoor jacuzzi. As I was tending to tired, sore muscles with a cold beer in hand, I had a sudden and very unsettling sensation. It was as if everything important that I had striven after in the previous 10 years, my much-awarded naval career, a condo, sports car, the beautiful property, a long-term relationship, was all meaningless. It felt like my inside suddenly spilled into the hot, swirling waters. Maybe some of you have experienced that moment when all you've worked for, fought for, compromised for, suddenly seemed of no importance. 
of no value. When you finally get what you have long sought and find it to be dross, that's a terrible moment. Christ was tapping at the door of my heart, and at my depths I knew he could give me real life. But once again I turned away from him. I do recall saying that I would get serious about God when I turned 50. Right. A year later, just days after I turned 33, my parents with their new assistant parish priest were conspiring once again for my soul. I flew from California for a two-week Christmas vacation. I was just six months away from leaving the Navy and was intending to start a new career in Southern California. Father Philip just happened to stop by for a visit with my parents on my first night home. I liked him instantly and just as quickly decided that I would have nothing to do with him. <laughs> my fallen spirit knew he wasn't safe. Despite my worst intentions, I phoned him a few days later and we went out to lunch. That began several very intense days of visiting. I ended up telling him my story and confessing years of sin. In addition to giving me sacramental absolution, he presented me with three gifts that helped open the door of my heart to the beginning of true conversion. He told me that despite all the wretchedness of my life, my family still loved me, that the church's doors were wide open for me, and that the Lord had always and would always love me. At 11 p.m. on December 31, 1986, with Father Philip at my side, I committed my life to Jesus Christ on the altar steps of my family's parish church. I remember looking up at the crucifix and telling Christ, hanging there on the cross, that I really didn't know who he was, but I was ready to give him my life. You're listening to Patrick Stewart of the Marion Center in Edmonton speaking on the topic Towards a Culture of Life during the Nothing More Beautiful series on the summer edition of Salt and Light Radio. I returned a few days later to the West Coast to begin the painful process of ending a seven-year relationship and to finish out my last six months in the Navy. My ship, the USS California, along with the carrier battle group, sailed from San Francisco Harbor just after New Year's 1987 for a six-month round-the-world deployment. In August of 1987, I left the Navy, my California friends, and most of my possessions behind, and returned to my parents' home in North Carolina. That fall, while studying philosophy at Duke University, I met three marvelously eccentric and holy ladies of the Madonna House Apostolate in Raleigh, North Carolina. I know some here in Edmonton, too. They were living a simple life of prayer and hospitality in a poor neighborhood. I was deeply touched by their love of the Lord and the church and by their, and by their love so easily shared with me and so many others. Within 10 months of meeting them, I headed up to the Madonna House Training Center in Cumbermere, Ontario. My unenthused parents and spiritual director thought I should be heading to the seminary instead. I spent the next nine months bathing in the spiritual and practical treasures and the awesome hospitality of the Madonna House laymen, laywomen, and priests. Madonna House is dedicated to the restoration of all things in Christ 
and I was in dire need of restoration when I arrived. I learned lots, entered more deeply into a relationship with Jesus, matured some, and had my whole world and personal view turned upside down while I was with Madonna House. Let me tell you about the school of the cows. Moo, that's what cows. For six of my nine months with the community, I lived at their farm that grew most of the food for the 150 members and guests living at Madonna House. I worked with the animal care layman and became the milker of a small dairy herd. Twice a day, once very early, very early in the morning, and then before supper in the late afternoon, the cows and I met at the dairy parlor. <laughs> cows are a lot smarter than I would have ever imagined. Despite the many graces of my recent conversion, I was still mostly living for me first, and the cows revealed this to me. <laughs> cows have a pecking order. Should I dare say a mooing order? Bad. When it comes time for milking, they quite happily line themselves up, senior cow first, on down the line outside the milking parlor, ready to be relieved of the heavy pressure of milk in their udders. In my first few months of milking, I had two motivating priorities. One, not to mess up so that my supervisor would not be mad at me. And next, to get this whole thing over with as quickly as possible. To that end, I reorganized, that is, pushed and shoved the cow lineup at each milking so that the order of the ladies matched up with my clipboard when they came in to be milked. <laughs> we know who's in charge. Cows have several ways of showing humans that we have upset their natural order. <laughs> you may not realize that in an old-style milking parlor, the milker has to get right under the cow <laughs> to wash, then strip the teats of old milk and attach the milking suction cups to the udder. That gives a cow lots of time to show you in several ways that you have annoyed it. There's a safety railing between you and the cow, but that doesn't stop a tail from slapping you in the face with amazing accuracy. <laughs> they have a versatile anatomical structure that allows them to kick you sideways <laughs> as well as backways. And then, well, they can make some real bad messes <laughs> that the offending milker has to clean up before leaving the milking parlor. How could a cow know that? With time, and not because I had yet made my connections, I became more relaxed, let the cows keep their preferred milking order, and stop being frantic about getting the milking over with. And you know what? The cows stopped getting after me. Imagine that. Catherine Doherty, the founder of Madonna House, had died three years before my first visit. After a few months with the community, I grew to dislike her from stories I heard the staff tell and after reading some of her writings. I sought out the wisdom of community elders who had lived with her and got directed to a newly published biography of Catherine written by Father Emile Marie Briere, a Madonna House priest formerly of the Edmonton Archdiocese. One Sunday afternoon, while reading the book, Catherine spoke to me. Really, I mean really. I believe it was her, thick Russian, accent and all. And she said so clearly in my mind, love me, don't like me. 
and I have loved her ever since and come to like her and even the parts of her that I found most offensive in those first days. Love me, don't like me has become one of my guiding phrases. At the end of my nine-month stay, I said goodbye to the wonderful family of Madonna House who had loved me and been patient with me and taught me by word and example to better love the Lord, my brothers and sisters, and myself. And of course, before leaving for North Carolina, I stopped at the barn for a last visit with my bovine teachers. After living those nine months in Madonna House, so intensely immersed in gospel living, it was difficult and even depressing to re-enter the ordinary scene back home. But I found my footing and within a few months entered a pre-seminary formation program in my home diocese. I tried to be faithful to Christ in all aspects of my life, study, friendship, parish, and family. But I was continually running up against myself, slipping not so slowly back into mediocrity and beyond. I was coming to see that I could not live the gospel on my own. And after a year, God made it plain and clear that I was to return to Canada and cast my lot with Madonna House. This I did in June of 1990. After completing two years of formation, I made my first promises of poverty, chastity, and obedience, and was assigned to our mission house in the north of England. Our little Madonna house, situated in a scenic village perched overlooking the North Sea, served as a pastoral center, a place of prayer, retreat, and hospitality for the local diocese. God had me in his school of love there. It felt like a pressure cooker. After about a year, my alcoholism came to a head, and I ended up working through the 12 steps with a dentist friend and member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Once again, Jesus put just who and what I needed right in my path. God accomplished lots of house cleaning and gave me new tools and greater self-knowledge in the nine months I worked the steps. Sobriety was still some years to come, though. In the fall of 1994, I returned to the Madonna House Training Center in Canada and served there for three years. I was given responsibility for our layman guest, and I worked with the one and only Michael Fagan at Outdoor Maintenance. I sawed up logs and split firewood, shoveled miles and miles and miles of winter paths, painted buildings, and tried to allow the Lord's space to continue his restoring work in me. I also let go of the priesthood during that time and embraced with great joy the layman vocation of Madonna House. In 1997, I was sent to Marion Center here in Edmonton. For the first few years, I cooked the stews and organized the many, many volunteers who make our work of feeding the poor not only possible, but joyful and mutually life-giving. In 2002, I was appointed director of Marion Center. I thought it would be easy. Sisters and brothers, I can tell you it was not. Relationships between me and the other family members did not just sing along. One of the gifts of my awkwardness with the staff was a discovery of gardening and the creating over a few years of an oasis of beauty and peace in our courtyard. I thank God for the plants and trees, the weeds and the dirt, and our friends who helped me with them. God gave me a place to make beauty when I discovered I was not so well equipped to make beauty in our family. And ultimately, the garden became a sacred meeting place for me, Christ, and those I lived with. And painting was another gift the Lord allowed me to develop in those years, 
another space within which to find the solace of beauty. Though I was 49 years old when appointed director, I was still in an early adult stage of maturity, not much beyond learning to take care of myself and one other person simultaneously. But a director needs the skill level of you parents that is able and willing to sacrificially take care of a whole family. I didn't exactly think that others had to do all the work. I like working hard, so that wasn't the problem. It was serving the whole group, person by person, doing this without expecting the others to take care of me in kind, and especially having the wherewithal to accompany individual community members through difficult times. I tried to bring to bear lessons I learned as an officer in the Navy and from my years in Madonna House. I'd had some great leaders and survived some miserable experiences, and you can learn from both, you know. A few hours after returning from the hospital with their firstborn child, my older brother and his wife phoned my mom in tears. They begged her to come show them what they were supposed to do next with the baby. <laughs> this was kind of how I felt after my first few months as director. Thanks be to God, our worldwide Madonna House family has 60 years of life experience. God raised up elders who had come through similar trials and who were equipped to help me. And I have also had the poor, my Christ-bearing brothers and sisters, who daily come to our doors and into our home for food, clothing, and friendship. Maybe they have been my best teachers. They have certainly showed me time and again when and how I am stingy, impatient, and selfish. And instead of kicking and swatting me like those cows did, they have most often blessed me with patience and kindness giving me cause to continue this journey into and with the Lord in Madonna House. God is not an old bachelor sitting up in the clouds. As Bishop John shared with us so beautifully at the beginning of his teaching, God is a relational God from all time, a community of love, of self-giving, Father giving all his being to the Son, the Son giving all his being to the Father, the Spirit receiving and giving love back and forth to Father and Son. And in the heart of the Trinity, I am first. You are first. God gives all of his being to us. Pope Benedict himself told us in his first encyclical that the most fundamental decision we have to make is to believe that God loved us first. As we come to believe that God loved us first, then we can be third. There is nothing more beautiful on this side of heaven than a culture of life. And that kind of culture must be guided by men and women who love the Lord, their neighbors, and themselves in that order. Am I third yet? Only God really knows. But if I were to answer the question, do I want to be third? Yes, yes, with all my heart. That is what I want, Lord. Please pray for me. Pray that I continue to say yes to his love and yes to all that he asks of me. And pray for my Marian Center family and for our worldwide Madonna House family. We will be praying for each of you. Thank you. You've been listening to the fourth of the Nothing More Beautiful series from the beautiful St. Joseph's Basilica in Edmonton, Alberta. The topic of today's session was Towards a Culture of Life. And we heard 
from the Bishop of Nelson, British Columbia, the Most Reverend John Corvo. Bishop Corvo used life issues such as abortion and euthanasia to emphasize that our relationships cannot be of domination or subordination with people and that we must remember the poor and the suffering. The witness talk was given by Patrick Stewart, director of the Marion Center in Edmonton, Alberta, who discussed how God continually reached out to him even after he repeatedly turned away. For more information on the Nothing More Beautiful series, you may visit the Edmonton Archdiocesan website, that's C-A-E-D-M dot C-A, that's Catholic Archdiocese of Edmonton, C-A-E-D-M dot C-A, and click on the Nothing More Beautiful link, where you can also watch videos of all the sessions. Nothing More Beautiful also airs on Salt and Light Television, and the new season begins again in November. To listen to any part of this broadcast that you may have missed or to download any Salt and Light Radio program, visit our website, saltandlighttv.org radio. All messages can be sent to radio at saltandlighttv.org and to read our blog, visit saltandlighttv.org blog. I'm Pedro Guevara Man. Thank you for being with us. We'll talk to you next time on the summer edition of Salt and Light Radio. <laughs>